Welcome to the Transformational Leadership Podcast. This is your host, Hannah Anam. My mission is to help you lead more effectively and be an agent of positive change in times of disruption. On this podcast, we interview practitioners and leadership experts and have coaching exercises that you can apply immediately to your work challenges. Together, we learn how to achieve success and create workplaces in a world that work better for all. Uh, well, I'm excited today to have Amir Paul as our podcast guest. Uh, Amir is the U.S. country president for Schneider Electric. In his role, he leads the commercial teams in the country, and uh, he and his leadership team work to deliver best-in-class solutions for Schneider Electric's partners and customers across the company's energy management and industrial automation portfolio. He is a member of the North American Executive leadership team. And before joining Schneider Electric, Amar worked at Dell for more than a decade, where he had several key roles of increasing responsibility in both North America and Europe. Amar and his family live in Chicago, where he enjoys amateur photography and travel. So Amar, we know that you're not getting much travel these days. So tell us a little bit about what you like to photograph, just so our um, podcast listener and audience can get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Well, first of all, Hannah, thanks for having me on. It's, it's a privilege. You know, Chicago has just such fabulous architecture that uh, when I started out, it was just trying to capture the architecture. And then more and more, I've sort of fallen in love with trying to capture the different feel of the city, right? Chicago is in one city. It's actually a lot of neighborhoods, and every neighborhood has a distinct and different feel to it. So that's been that's been a lot of fun, and it's a great way for me to get out and you know keep discovering and rediscovering the city that I've lived in now for uh, almost twenty years. Yeah, and so it sounds like uh, there are a couple of values like curiosity that seem to be really popping up, and uh, sounds like there's something about an artistic expression that you like in uh, some of the photography work that you're doing. Yeah, and I think I think more and more, you know, you tend to realize that that a lot of the uh, sort of problems we face require this balance of left brain and right brain. And actually, my alma mater, Northwestern, spends a lot of time talking about that. Uh, but also, it's just fun you know, to have a different sensibility that you try and go explore. And you just have to remember not to take it too seriously or get too offended with the criticism <laughs> sometimes oh. that you do. But, but outside of that, I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I love, I love travel. Like you, I love traveling um, globally. And I love taking pictures of other cultures because I think it, there's so much beauty around us as we experience life. And so um, one of the reasons why I really wanted to chat with you uh, Amr, is that I know in my work with the World Economic Forum Future of Work Initiative, Schneider Electric's name has come up a lot. Your company seems to be at the forefront of really experimenting with and doing a lot of work in, you know, lighthouse factories of the future. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to learn about how you think about leadership. So. Um, I would love for you to share a bit more about Schneider Electric. You know, what are, what are the two or three things that our listening audience need to know about Schneider Electric? What kind of work you guys do? And what has you on the forefront of innovation? Yeah. 
Well, you know, let's rather than telling you more about the company, let me work backwards from what we think are some of the most compelling problems that we are trying to solve. Because I think it's it's you know often companies talk about sort of their prerogative from their perspective out, and sometimes it's useful to go the other direction. So yeah, yeah, I um, love that actually, Amir, because. You're so right. You know, when you look at it from the perspective of the ecosystem that you're in and what are the biggest problems that you're trying to solve for in the ecosystem, it just makes it so much more purpose driven, I think, for so many of the stakeholders in the ecosystem. So exactly. And and so, you know, we had uh, uh, the, the best way I can describe it is for me, and this is a very personal observation, but there's a graph in one of these talks that I give that I talk about often, which is if you look at the amount of electrification and energy consumption vectors of the world, it is going to continue to increase uh, almost at a sort of 40% rate. Then if you look at the vector of what we have to do in carbon emissions to to stay within what is already a very problematic uh, sort of threshold of one and a half degrees, the rate of emission decline is equally dramatic. So you have two arrows going in opposite directions. And as the world's population continues to expand uh, and there is this expectation of, of a better quality of life for everybody, which includes access to energy, access to digital, how do you resolve that dilemma? And, uh, and I think if I were to describe one chart and one problem statement that is encapsulates what we do every day, that's a now, how do we tackle that problem? Um, you mentioned we're the world's specialist in energy management and industrial automation. And when you think about that in more sort of accessible terms, what that means is there are buildings and plants of various kinds, right? A building can be a data center, which, by the way, is one of the largest polluters of our generation. I did not know that. Wow. Absolutely. Data centers are, are, are not as clean as they need to be, especially at the exponential rate of expansion. Traditional factories, uh, homes, offices. So all of those are a big driver. And if you think about the, the carbon footprint in a city, about 40% of it comes from buildings of various kinds. So how do we make buildings more efficient? As more and more people live in cities, you and I grew up in mega cities. Uh, we, we love cities. So how do we make cities more livable and, and more sustainable? And then same thing in the industrial automation side. How do we bring that combination of software, hardware, and services to find efficiencies in ways that we can scale in a more sustainable, responsible, reliable, and resilient way? And so those are the problems that we try and solve. And we solve them both in terms of improving on technology that's existed for decades but also in innovating uh, in things like IoT and analytics and AI. Beautiful. So what inspires you about solving uh, this really critical problem? Where I love how you describe these two vectors going in opposite directions. It's a tough issue. What, what inspires you as a leader? Yeah, we, we have leadership conferences every year, and we had the privilege of having uh, the chief operating officer of uh, SpaceX join us. Uh, and uh, she talked very elegantly about the mission of SpaceX in terms of facilitating uh, the ability of humans to ultimately colonize other planets, right, and, and have have a plan B 
and I and that made me laugh. I mean, the just the audacity of the ambition is fabulous. But I told my team, I said, you know, what inspires me about that is while Tesla and Blue Origin and others are working on Plan B, we're working on Plan A. Perfect. I love that. Yes. <laughs> Plan A is is make sure that we can find a way where sustainability and urbanization, population growth, and and lifting the quality of life of everybody doesn't come at a cost to the one planet we have. So. That that ultimately is is what you know drives a lot of us, and for me personally, it's it's the most exciting part of what I do. Great. So these times of disruption are you know incredible opportunities for us to reimagine a better world. You guys have already been doing that uh, in terms of solving this issue of um, on the one hand reducing our carbon footprint. And on the other hand, creating opportunities for the you know vast underserved of of our planet. So, what are some things that? How have you all been agile in terms of responding to the needs of the pandemic? Sure, sure. You know, it's 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 a lot of little things, but I think more than anything, you hit the nail on the head. It's it's a mindset, right? It's this capacity collectively to try and find a way to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And so uh, I'll give you one example, right? We, when we started, like every, most companies in the U.S., we found ourselves really constrained in terms of PPE. So our teams uh, designed and worked with an OEM and we procured a mass making machine, not part of our core competency, but now in one of our factories, we have a machine and we make masks and we've gone from, not having enough supply to having enough supply for our consumption to having a safety stock to now uh, donating to the communities and partners and customers we work with. So that was a whole journey we went through. Similarly, when the country was going through a period where there was a sense we didn't have enough ventilators. Now, we don't make ventilators, but inspired by what we saw the companies doing, we worked with uh, Rice University that had an open source design. We took over one of our design centers and we said, we have engineers and uh, let's see if we can start creating prototypes. And we created prototype ventilators, which we donated to local hospitals. So a lot of the examples that you gave, Amir, um, were around people just being incredibly agile. So both from the work that you were doing prior to the pandemic, including some of the stories that you shared uh, during the pandemic, how does an individual leader create that culture of incredible agility where people are very quickly able to pivot to, hey, I've got to figure out how to you know, make masks or ventilators or completely figure out something different that I've never done before? What, what makes in your experience, like that individual leader who's leading a team of people, what, what are some of the key qualities or uh, behaviors that are really important? You know, I think every culture is different. Uh, it was different at Dell. It's different at Schneider. I don't know that there's uh, one recipe, but the couple of things that come to mind, uh, you mentioned one of them, curiosity is a big part of it. I, I think this capacity to always be asking this question of, is there a better way to do it? I think this the next biggest thing in my perspective is humility. Mm. Uh, I think leaders that facilitate change are far more effective in environments like these, the leaders that that feel an imperative to have all the answers. And I think the more uncertainty that you face, the more you have to think of the inventory of of the experiences and skill sets around you 
and your role becomes more about facilitation. And I think I think if you can create a culture where leaders see their role as that, it's not only creating space for everybody else to contribute more, but it allows for uh, more dynamic, more agile reimagination. And I think the last thing I'd say is is urgency often often drives a lot of change. Um, you know, things that we would have even even in our I'll, I'll speak to myself the decisions that I would have probably hummed and hawed about and thought about and dragged my feet uh, over weeks and months we've made in hours because the absence of any other choice really simplified the equation. Yeah. So I think I think that's the third pillar that comes into play. Um, the trick is to keep that same sense of experimentation and wonder when that urgency is perhaps not as prevalent. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. It's it's really struck me that your use of the word, um, as you talked about change, you talked about facilitating change. And so much of what we hear in the nomenclature is driving change, right? So the leader at the front sort of making change happen and, you know, some reluctant followers trying to sort of follow or sometimes not follow or sometimes resist. So much uh, has been written around digital transformation and why it fails is because of, you know, human reasons and not digital and technology reasons. And so um, I love that point that you were making about curiosity, humility, and then obviously the urgency of the moment. So how, what would a meeting look like if I were to drop in, Amr, in one of your meetings, right? And there was curiosity and humility being displayed and you were facilitating that meeting. What, what might I see and notice? We talk about two modes. There are generally more, uh, but mode one and mode two. And it is an oversimplification, but it helps us. Mode one is incredibly tactical. It's very execution-oriented. It's about what we're going to ship from our factories, what our order intake rates are, what R&D projects have stage gates that they have to hit, what marketing programs have to launch, when they activate, what outputs we expect. There's generally very quantified inputs and outputs, and we know where variation from our design points are happening. And so it's really about uh, collectively understanding what's happening, identifying what needs to be addressed and addressing it, and doing that with very high accountability. So not a lot of creativity. Uh, There is always needs for creative problem solving in every mechanism, but but there's not a lot of sort of reimagining happening in those meetings, right? Those spaces are execution spaces. Then we have spaces where, where, by definition, we talk about reimagination. And, and the trick in your own calendar, in your own time as a team, is to be able to, to switch between the two. And the nature of the conversations are, are very different, right? In the first conversation, it's very much about people sort of committing to what they're going to do, reporting out, problem-solving, in the second one, it's a lot of curiosity, a lot of questions. And sometimes, you know, some of us who are, who are more action-oriented end up being frustrated because you can spend two hours debating a topic and not sure if you made a lot of progress. But it's an iterative process, and sometimes it moves very slowly, and then all of a sudden you have a breakthrough. And, uh, and I think it's getting that balance right. That's great. So one thing that strikes me about this notion. I love you said, you know, mode one and mode two, 
where it's very analytical task focused execution. And then there is this other creative piece. One thing that is I'm really curious about is around failure, right? So the ability to innovate and be creative requires some tolerance for failure uh, inside of organizations. And so many organizations tend to sort of say, you know, I, yes, we want innovation, but then there is this culture that you swim in where when anybody makes a mistake, it's really hard on them and, and they get punished for it. So what advice do you have for leaders, HR leaders and other leaders on, of teams that are cre- wanting to create cultures of greater innovation? How do, we, how do we create some space for failure? What does that look like? You know, it's a great question. I think your critique that failure is sort of talked about a lot, but tolerated unequally, uh, I think is, is a fair critique. To me, failure is perhaps the wrong word, right? Um, I think failure is when you come out of a process not knowing any more than you went into it hmm. and exhausted a lot of resources. And my definition of failing fast is getting to that incremental understanding and piece of knowledge without having invested too many resources. The other mental model that I really like is one that I think uh, Amazon talks a lot about, which is one-way doors and two-way doors. So as, as I understand their vocabulary on this, uh, is a one-way door is one where once you go through it, there's no coming back. So you better have thought through the implications and choices and, and, and there's no ability to adjust. And so you have to stress test those decisions and take a lot more time. Two-way doors are ones where you can try something. If you don't like it, you can just dial it back. And, and so your opportunity cost is actually quite low and your frequency of adjustment is quite high. And so in two-way doors, your entire system of management should reference velocity. And I think helping the team understand which ones are one-way doors. Building a new factory for us is a one-way door. Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of resources. A lot of resources. Experimenting with a different engagement model for a webinar is a two-way door. So I think differentiating between those two pieces helps as well. And then you and you challenged me on this and I've been thinking about it. I think the last piece is leaders have to talk about their failures, right? And uh, I've I've been doing that and I think every time I do it, I'm surprised by the feedback because a lot of people uh, are appreciative that I'm sharing it. And and I find that sort of surprising to me because because I still walk around obsessing and worrying about decisions I make every day. I think this perception of leaders having certainty and and conviction and never worrying is at least not true in my case. Yeah. I'm sure there are captains of industry that operate that way, but that's not me. So so I've been reflecting a lot on the global financial crisis. So yeah. 2008 and what happened and. As you may remember, Dell was a famously direct company. And around that time frame is when we really committed to this idea of building a channel organization. And I was part of the team that was working on that. And one of the things we fundamentally, I fundamentally got wrong was really assessing what the internal pushback to setting up a new go-to-market structure would be. And I didn't spend enough time thinking about how to engage our direct sales teams as we were setting up a channel organization. And it became 
until we corrected it down the road, more of an internal conflict setup uh, than it was a collaborative setup. And and mm. my learning from that is to always try and understand um, the anxieties and fear uh, of the people, not just the rational reaction to it. And I know uh, that sounds silly in retrospect, but at the time we thought the logic was very clear. There was a whole set of customers we weren't covering through our direct teams. We didn't have the resources to expand our direct teams. So we would cover those accounts through a channel organization and there was bright red lines between the two and everything would be fine. Uh, and I just underestimated how much more time we should have spent uh, talking about that as opposed mm. to going after some of the rules of engagement. So I think, I think at each stage, you know, some of that storytelling matters. Uh, the other thing that you always come back with is not waiting for things to be obvious. Uh, one of my favorite adages is that disruptive change always goes through three phases. At first, it's crazy. Then it's dangerous. And then it's obvious. Mm. When I was a teenager, uh, you were told, don't meet people on the internet and don't get in the car with strangers. Now we use the internet to have strangers come pick us up. So what would have seemed crazy and dangerous (laughs) in 1999 is obvious now. But that journey is problematic, right? Airbnb, when it first started, people were like, I'm not going to have strangers come and stay in my house. And now it's obvious. Each one of us has these mindsets of, you know, here are the rules of how things should be, but in a, in a highly disruptive world, a big part of the learning, and I talk about this in my book, um, Wired for Disruption, a big part of the learning is actually unlearning, uh, unlearning some of the old rules so that you know new things can be tried. One of the things that uh, I'm curious about is how you, know, you grow people you know, this time of, of change and disruption is an incredible opportunity for growth of people because there's a lot of experimentation happening, to your point, necessary experimentation. And at the same time, there are a lot of crucible moments that we're facing as leaders when we don't know what to do. Things are not predictable and we're having to make really tough choices. And so talk to me about, you know, what you as a leader are thinking about, what leaders at Schneider Electric are thinking about in terms of really helping people grow. And I know in your organization, you're trying a lot of new organizational models as you mm-hmm. do more and more work toward AI and bots. So can you a little, share a little bit about that? Because I think so many organizations and leaders can benefit. Yeah, I think, I think you know, this notion of uh, leadership in the most traditional sense it's somehow tied to high hierarchical status. It's tied to, you know, you talked about that image of a leader driving decisions from the front. Uh, if you really think about organizational structure, those are increasingly antiquated ideas, right? I think there are lots of definitions of this, but the, the capacity to bring a group of people together and help them create something that they couldn't have done and sustain it after you're gone. So, I think, I think this notion of, of defining leadership not as a position, but an act, uh, I think is really important. The second thing is giving people opportunities, right? Uh, we talk about bold bets. Um, so whether it's in our hiring processes, talent development processes, taking uh, a risk of people and, and making a bet and giving them an opportunity. And I, 
in my career, I can say absolutely that were it not for a number of people making those bets, uh, I wouldn't be where I am. So, so I think taking taking risk, I think matters. And then I think the last thing is is empowering but supporting. Right? Um, you don't want to feel alone, but you also don't want to feel constrained. And I think creating assignments where you can give people enough support that you know you're with them but enough space for them to go create something of their own. I think those things all matter. And, you know, situations like this, uh, as you said, are, are plentiful in opportunities and problems uh, that come up with things like that. So mm. it's really about sort of getting into that intentional practice and defining leadership fundamentally differently. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you said about leadership is an act, you know, not a title, not a position in the hierarchy. Uh, It's your ability to influence the ecosystem around you. And one piece that I'd like for you to uh, maybe share more about is when we were talking earlier, you were sharing about these marketplaces that you have within your company from an organizational structure perspective of how teams come together to solve problems that are unique. So maybe talk a little bit about that uh, because you guys are also making a pretty big transition of your workforce in terms of upskilling and reskilling your workforce. So what you're talking about is sort of our response to experiential learning, which I think is super important. Our response to creating democratic and accessible and equal opportunities within the company. And our response to this idea of a gig economy, right? So we were looking at all these trends and saying, how could that manifest itself within our company? And so we came up with this idea of this open talent marketplace. And the idea was a marketplace where the normal bureaucracies and frictions could be eliminated. And you could simply match people who were interested in working on a particular problem with the set of problems. And so we started rolling out the idea to managers to say, look, take a problem or a project assignment. This is, you know, we did a lot of training on what type of project might fit an open talent marketplace assignment. Uh, all our managers quickly learned that when they when they write boring job descriptions, no one applies to the project. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they learned that the notion of marketplaces require a little bit of, of selling on their part as well, which, by the way, is a humbling experience, right? Absolutely. You know, normally, you're like, I'm going to go hire somebody. <laughs> Makes you a better marketer. <laughs> exactly. So... So we launched it actually not so long ago in the U.S. And we have 28,000 employees now uh, locally and globally that are engaged. Uh, uh, 32% of our total employee base globally is part of this marketplace. We have about in the U.S. about 326 open projects. And they, again, range in size and scope. And... The most interesting thing is we've had 45,000 hours of work done in this marketplace. And, you know, they're super sort of diverse in terms of experiences. So you can have someone, for example, who is an R&D engineer who's fascinated by how marketing might work. And rather than saying, how do I engage or network or get to know people, who you, would I even talk to? They sort of talk about the things they're sort of interested in working on, and then there's a match, then they have an opportunity to participate. And naturally, in that process, there's a quick set of feedback from the participant to the manager saying, your project was well-defined, I knew what to do, I got my support, 
and from the manager to the participant in the project of, yeah, so-and-so was able to do a good job and I enjoyed collaborating with them. And that quick uh, mechanism to dip in, try different things, experience different things, we found has been super encouraging. We found some great talent. Yeah, that is really beautiful. And I imagine that it is the kind of thing that changes cultures in many ways, you know, kind of reinforces what you were saying about meritocracy, uh, access, democrat, you know, demo making access to jobs and information much more democratic. And I imagine that it actually builds stronger leaders, right? Not just better job description writers, but also stronger yeah. leaders because you're now having to work with somebody that perhaps you've never worked with on your team. And how do you learn how to quickly motivate, build trust and uh, with them and, and get their best, right? No, that's exactly right. And again, you know, it's early on and we have a lot more to do, but I'm, I'm very proud of our uh, HR teams that put that into place. I'm very proud of everyone who's participated. And, you know, one of the things that I joke about with my leadership team is I, I banned org charts mm. um, because because I think it's a bankrupt idea that one static configuration is really the answer to how we solve problems. And the more we publish them, the more, you know, the old adages of run something up the flagpole or make sure we have yeah. it just it, it doesn't work for for it didn't work before the crisis. It certainly doesn't work in the crisis and it, it won't work post the crisis. So. Mm. How do you create an environment where, where all of us are oriented to the problem to be solved and resources are brought together to work on a problem and then can disaggregate a little bit into available pools of skill sets that can be reconfigured into new set of uh, teams? Uh, now, at scale, there is some structure that eventually you do need. But I think, I think that ability to constitute and reconstitute, depending on the problems you're facing, is uh, underpinning of being agile. Agile organizations, you know, really seek out and remove rigidity in their setup. And and I think traditional organizations weren't designed for that. And by the way, back in the day of Henry Ford, when the first orchard showed up, they were designed to institute rigidity, right? So mm. they do their jobs very well. Right. But in, in 2020, I think I think we're trying to get rid of that rigidity. Yes, yes. We're in a very different world. I think we were optimizing for efficiency in that time. And now we have, I believe, creativity and sustainability and well-being and a lot of other things to optimize for. So last question. You have kids, right? How old are they, Amr? I don't, actually. Uh, I have nephews and nieces, which is fabulous. I, I, it's the closest to unconditional love I've experienced, and yet I get to hand them back to their parents. <laughs> That's great. So you've got nieces and nephews, and if you bring to mind now, you know, your favorite niece or nephew, what would you tell them in terms of advice? You know, if you had to sort of say, hey, let me take you aside. Let's go on a little walk. And I'm going to give you everything that I've learned so far about um, what it is to be a leader in this brave new world that we want to reimagine. What, um, what would you tell them? What kind of advice would you give them? It's a great question. Look, first, I would tell them to dream big. I think I'm a product of an immigrant family. And I think we had... Uh, we had very uh, survivalistic goals, <laughs> and and I think I think that's true of a lot of 
immigrant experiences that I've talked to and meet other families that have gone through that. But but I think I think one of the things even today that I believe that's remarkable about this country in particular is the capacity uh, to to navigate whatever you want to navigate and to to dream big. So uh, I, w- I would say have big dreams. The second thing I would say is there's no, there really is no substitute for hard work. So I think you have to make sure that you are comfortable putting in the work. And the third thing I would say is, is do something where the journey is as important as the destination. I think spending a lot of time where you're just interested in the destination but miserable in the process is is a waste and life is short. And uh, and so I think those would be those would be the main headlines. I don't know that that you know leadership is something that people should inherently aspire to. I think I think the idea of contributing and making things better than they found them. And in that, there will be moments where you lead, there are moments where you follow. And increasingly, I believe for leaders, learning how to be better followers is as important. Because if they can't learn to follow, they can never create cultures that are more dynamic. Almost everyone in my leadership team knows more about their domain of expertise than I do. And it would be foolish for me not to be a better follower. Hmm. I'm sure on, on the right day, they would give me mixed grades on that, but it's definitely something that's a work in progress. Awesome. Awesome. And, and what makes the journey worthwhile for you? All of us. Our role is simply just to move the ball forward. Mm. Uh, I think when it comes to sustainability, though, we have to make up for how we got here. And so that makes it even more important. And what, you know, our CEO has this great point he makes. He says, we're the first generation to fully understand the impact of the environment and sustainability on the planet and the last generation that can do anything about it. And whether we like it or not, we have an immense responsibility because in that continuum I described, if we don't get this part right, then we might need Plan B, and that that feels like it's a lot more complicated. Well, I'm I'm voting for Plan A, Amir, and um, thank you for both your you know inspiration in terms of um, helping us learn a little bit more about um, what it is to lead in a organization that is highly agile and also an organization that envisions a better future and plan A and is working uh, hard to make it happen. So really appreciate your being here and sharing more of uh, yourself today. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Hannah Anam. Please rate, comment, and share our podcasts with those you care about. Be the leader who helps others grow and thrive in times of disruption. You can visit our website at www.transformleaders.tv. There, you'll find other great tools to grow your leadership and be a force for good in these times. Until the next time, my friends.